We believe Jamie was in the home at the time of the homicides, and we believe she is still in danger. A brutal murder in the middle of the night and a 13-year-old girl missing. The case of Jamie Kloss captures the nation's attention. The sense of urgency is growing by the minute here in Barron County, Wisconsin. A community on edge. We're all scared. Who, who did this? Who would right. do something like this? A family desperate to find her. My life was ripped apart and shattered into pieces. A mystery in a small town. I've been doing this for 20 plus years and I just don't know what happened in this case. But hope never lost. Thank God, after those 88 days, we at least got answers. I'm Lou Raguse. This is 88 Days, The Jamie Kloss Story. Chapter 8, Healing. Good afternoon. Shortly, the man who pled guilty to kidnapping Jamie Kloss and killing her parents will learn his fate. Sentencing for Jake Patterson will happen inside a barren Wisconsin courtroom. We first learned of Patterson's plans to plead guilty in the case in a handwritten letter he sent to Lou Ragus. And right now, we want to go to the Barron County Circuit Court and Judge James Babler. I am calling 19 CF 20 State versus. Jake Patterson. This is the time scheduled for sentencing. Once again, the courtroom is full. It's late May, the Friday before Memorial Day. And we've been told Jake Patterson's sentencing hearing could last as long as three hours. So many reporters want to sit inside the courtroom that Sheriff Chris Fitzgerald holds a lottery, drawing our business cards out of a bingo drum. Luckily, my card is one of the eight he pulls out, and I'm seated behind Patterson's father and sister on the left side of the courtroom, among the other reporters, the TV camera right behind me. As deputies walk Jake Patterson into the courtroom, they shield him from the camera, Jamie's family, and his own family, apparently to prevent another outburst like he attempted after pleading guilty. Leading up to the hearing, a lot of people wondered whether Jamie herself would be there. But I learned earlier in the morning that she will not attend in person. All of her aunts and uncles and cousins who've been at every hearing are here, with her grandma Kloss, about 20 family members in all, along with some of the investigators filling the right side of the courtroom behind District Attorney Brian Wright. Uh, Mr. Wright, do you have any oral victim impact statements? Yes, Your Honor, there are six family members who would like to speak, and Attorney Chris Gramstrup, who is the guardian ad litem for Jamie Kloss, would like to speak on her behalf. At sentencing hearings, victims are allowed to tell the judge about the effect the crimes have had on them, giving victim impact statements. We learn that for the first time, we'll hear Jamie's own words, read by her attorney. But first, her aunt Sue Allard, Denise's sister. You might remember her from her emotional interview with her brother and sister the night before Thanksgiving. To the defendant, on the morning of October 15th, 2018, I received the worst phone call one could get. The lives of my baby sister Denise and her husband Jim were brutally taken and their only daughter, Jamie, my beloved niece, was missing. I fell to the ground and screamed. I was hoping I was just waking up from a nightmare, but later to realize it was one I lived for 88 days. Denise and Jim, we love with all our hearts, were taken from us. We had to go through the motions of planning their funeral without getting the chance to respectfully mourn their loss. Their baby girl was still out there somewhere, and we needed to do everything possible to bring her home to us. Denise and Jim would never rest in peace until that happened. She was their world. I needed this girl home. We needed this girl home. My life was ripped apart and shattered into pieces. I don't want another family to go through the nightmare my family has endured. Judge, as I come before you, I ask that you sentence the defendant maximum sentences on each count in this case. Next, Lindsay Smith is speaking. She's Jamie's cousin who works as a jailer at the Barron County Justice Center. Now that Jamie is living in the home where Lindsay grew up, Lindsay's like a sister to her. We were so glad that Jamie was home, where she belonged with her family, but you took so much from Jamie. You took her parents, her home, her childhood, and all of her happiness. She had to rebuild her life and start completely over. You took so much from all of us. You took my aunt and uncle from me. 
I was so very close to my aunt, and now I won't have her at the most important days of my life because of you. One of the most painful things for me to think about is that the last moments of my aunt's life were the worst and scariest moments of her life. No one should leave this earth in such a horrible way. That image Lindsay describes of Denise dying while protecting Jamie really impacts the rest of the family in the courtroom as they begin to wipe away tears. From the first day after the crime was committed, the tragedy of Jim and Denise's murders took a back seat to finding Jamie. It really had to. Finding Jamie alive was everyone's top priority. But at this hearing, the loss of Jim and Denise is in the forefront. And this image of Denise's final moments is something the rest of the family will go back to in their statements. It's heart-wrenching. Next, Jamie's godmother and now guardian, Jennifer Smith, sits down behind the microphone. Jamie no longer has her parents, which were her whole world, and she was their whole world. She no longer has her home, her bedroom, her belongings. All that stuff is just bad memories to her. You have taken all that and more. It can't be replaced. She lives in fear, doesn't have a normal 13-year-old life. And that's all from what you did. It's so heartbreaking. We now live in fear every day. Watch our backs. Have home security systems. We don't feel safe. I will say I won't let you destroy my family no more. We can be happy again. Smile more. Move forward with life. And that's why we can. We will know you will be behind bars for the rest of your life and pay for all the evil you have done. I want justice for Denise, Jim, and Jamie. Jamie's aunt, Kelly Engelhart, then takes her turn. You'll remember her from our interview with Jim Class's siblings in the third chapter and on the phone from the basketball game on the night that Jamie escaped. Kelly breaks down in tears right away while spelling her name for the judge. I am Jim's little sister. I tried to cry as much as I could so I wouldn't do this. But as you can see from the beautiful people that spoke before me, is this is devastating to us all. I remember the night after it happened, and we were at home, and we had to go to bed. I have never in my life been so scared. I was scared to death for my, my siblings. I was scared to death for my kids. I was scared to death for everybody because we didn't know. For 88 days, we had to listen to people speculate, people talk about your family, and we didn't know. We didn't know who was involved, if we were in danger. It was extremely exhausting. Um, My kids lost an aunt and uncle. My nieces and nephews lost. My brothers lost their best friend. And that's the hardest to see your family members suffer. But we all suffered. But thank God, after those 88 days, we at least got answers. We were able to put the pieces together, and one person did that. That was my niece. She saved our family. She put the pieces together, and now we need to move on. And Judge, we ask that the family ask that you like the lady said before, to please sentence him to life in prison on both sentences consecutively with no possibility of parole. We have to be able to go to sleep at night knowing that our niece is finally safe and that nobody else can be hurt. Thank you. Thank you. The last family members to speak are Jim's brothers, Mike and Jeff. First, Mike. My brother, he was a dedicated, hard-working guy. 27 years, he worked at that turkey store. And I can probably count on one hand the days he missed because he was sick. He, he tried to do the best. Um, he tried to provide for his family every Sunday. He called my mom. He was a big, we're a big sports family. He, he loved sports, but he especially loved the Packers. He'd call my brother Jeff every Sunday, and they talked football. Like a lot of us Packer fans, they lost on Sunday. He wasn't the best guy to be around Monday. He was just, yeah, he, he took it to heart, but that, 
That's a good thing. So my mom, brother, are going to have them phone calls. That's taken from us. October 15th, I remember it like yesterday. Um, my wife came down screaming. Your brother's dead. Denise is dead. And they can't find Jamie. I, I didn't know. I didn't know. How do you comprehend anything like that? Then I had the undaunting task of going to my mom's house and tell her that her son, daughter-in-law, were murdered and that uh, Jamie was missing. Um, I've done a lot of hard things in my lifetime, but that was, Judge, that was the hardest thing I had to do. And then as I learned about the events of that early morning, I, I'm at peace that my brother did not suffer. But I'm also as mad as hell that he didn't have a chance. Because if he would have had a chance, um, you know, he, this would have been totally different. And like Sue, Jennifer said, Lindsay, I can't imagine what Denise was going through her mind in that bathroom. Uh, I, I just, uh, I don't know, you know, and she didn't die in vain. She died protecting Jamie. And because of this monster, Jamie won't have her mom and dad at her dance recitals. Won't have her mom and dad at her prom. Won't come and dance. My brother won't be able to walk down the aisle at a wedding day. Um, I and my parents, they raised us just to be good, hard-working people, treat people fair, honor, do the right thing. Jim and Dace were doing the right thing, and uh, Jimmy didn't get treated fair that morning. Um, so we just ask that you impose the maximum sentences. Um, do the right thing, and, and uh, please do that. Thank you. Thank you. Now, Jeff Kloss, who's especially painful for me to watch because he stayed so composed during our difficult interview at his mother's home in November. Now, he's just so broken up, seated at the microphone. And I was listening to Lindsay, and I started thinking about like Mike, Mike said, you know, Jim didn't have a chance, but he, he terrorized. <laughs> he terrorized Denise. Jim was as tough as they came. If he could have cut his hands on him, it would have been different. <laughs> and we miss him and love him. <laughs> and we think about him every day. And like Mike said, the phone calls, they're done. I want her often. He gets to talk to his family. We don't get to talk to him at all, ever again. And we have to live with that. And we will. And we'll be stronger. We're going to move on. Judge, I know you're going to do the right thing. One thing about Jim, he just, he wanted to go to work. He loved the, like Mike said, he loved the Packers. He loved the, he loved Wisconsin sports. And that's what he lived for. You know, I think that's a pretty good day. So I know you're going to do the right thing. Thank you. Thank you. Then attorney Chris Gramstrup approaches the mic. Go ahead. Judge, this is the statement of Jamie Kloss. Okay. He is about to read the words written by Jamie Kloss herself. This is the moment everyone in the courtroom is waiting for. After the strength and courage she showed escaping by herself after 88 days of captivity. Last October... Jake Patterson took a lot of things that I love away from me. It makes me the most sad that he took away my mom and my dad. I loved my mom and dad very much. And they loved me very much. They did all they could to make me happy and protect me. He took them away from me forever. I felt safe in my home and I loved my room and all of my belongings. He took all of that too. I don't want to even see my home or my stuff because of the memory of that night. My parents and my home were the most important things in my life. He took them away from me in a way that will always leave me with a horrifying memory. I have to have an alarm on the house now just so I can sleep. I used to love to go out with my friends 
I loved to go to school. I loved to do dance. He took all of those things away from me too. It's too hard for me to go out in public. I get scared and I get anxious. These are just ordinary things that anyone like me should be able to do, but I can't because he took them away from me. But there are some things that Jake Patterson can never take from me. He can't take my freedom. He thought that he could own me, but he was wrong. I was smarter. I watched his routine and I took back my freedom. I will always have my freedom and he will not. Jake Patterson can never take away my courage. He thought he, control, he could control me, but he couldn't. I feel like what he did is what a coward would do. I was brave and he was not. He can never take away my spirit. He thought that he could make me like him, but he was wrong. He can't ever change me or take away who I am. He can't stop me from being happy and moving forward with my life. I will go on to do great things in my life, and he will not. Jake Patterson will never have any power over me. I feel like I have some power over him because I get to tell the judge what I think should happen to him. He stole my parents from me. He stole almost everything I loved from me. For 88 days, he tried to steal me, and he didn't care who he hurt or who he killed to do that. He should stay locked up forever. Judge, those are the words of Jamie Kloss, and it's been my privilege to deliver them to you. Thank you. People in the courtroom are obviously emotional as Jamie's attorney reads her statement. It gives me chills when she turns the tables, going from what Patterson took from her to what he will never be able to take. For those who followed the case from the beginning, I think this is the moment that gives us a sense of relief. Jamie sounds so strong through her words that we can believe that despite everything, she really will make it. Then District Attorney Brian Wright begins his sentencing argument. In every way imaginable, these crimes are aggravated in this case by the premeditated planning the defendant engaged in. He's asking for back-to-back life sentences for the murders and the max 40 years for kidnapping. Really, the only decision the judge has to make is whether Jake Patterson will ever be eligible for parole. The life sentence itself is mandatory. But each side gives an argument first, and Wright shows exhibits, photographs on large poster boards set up at the front of the courtroom. Your Honor, Exhibit 1 are family photos of James... Denise, and Jamie. This is the family that Mr. Patterson destroyed. We are seeing a photo collage of Jamie and her parents. Wright describes them as a quintessential Wisconsin small-town family. Her parents living to provide for their daughter, their only daughter, the center of their lives. Then Wright begins going into detail of how Patterson carried out the crime, Much of it we've already read in the criminal complaint, but he includes some new details. He had been thinking about kidnapping a girl for several months and was just waiting for the right opportunity. When he saw Jamie getting on the school bus, he began plotting that because of the location of the Kloss home on Highway 8, police wouldn't know where he had come from. Duluth, Eau Claire, the Twin Cities, and there was little or no traffic at night. It was a location where the defendant felt he would be able to get away with his scheme of kidnapping a girl, any girl. The defendant decided the best way he could get away with kidnapping Jamie was to go to the the Claus home at night, kill anyone inside, and not leave any witnesses. Exhibit two, Your Honor, is a photo of the shotgun the defendant used to murder James and Denise. Mr. Patterson's DNA was on the shotgun. Exhibit three is a photo of the three unused slug shells out of the six shells he loaded into the magazine tube of the shotgun. The three spent shells that were found at the Kloss home 
match Exhibit 3. Ballistic tests determined the three spent shells were fired from the shotgun shown in Exhibit 2. And the defendant's DNA was found on all three of the spent shells that were found at the Kloss home. This is new information. And it indicates to me that if authorities really had Patterson's DNA on the spent shells, maybe they would have eventually caught Patterson, even if Jamie hadn't escaped. It also indicates that they have strong evidence connecting him to the murders, even without his confession in Jamie's interview. Exhibit 4 is the photograph of the front door that Mr. Patterson kicked in after shooting at the lock. The terror and fear that Denise and Jamie felt at that moment, must have been excruciating. This was a shotgun. This wasn't a handgun. It wasn't a gun with a silencer, but a shotgun. A shotgun that country neighbors to the west with a stand of trees between their home and the Kloss home could hear even from inside their house. At close range, the sound of that shotgun blast would have jolted Denise and Jamie, and the sound would have been deafening. Add to that their sense that James was dead. Denise had taken her phone with her when she and Jamie hid in the bathroom. Somehow, in the midst of the terror and fear of knowing the person who shot James was now in the house, Denise was able to call 911. This is the 911 call that Barron County Dispatch received, the CD recording of this call having been marked as Exhibit 5. We'll play the 911 call, but first I do want to warn you, it's disturbing and unsettling. We've been told since the beginning, investigators couldn't make out what's being said. Here at the sentencing hearing is the first time anyone from the public is listening to it. I've listened to that 911 call many times with high-quality headphones, and anyone who claims they can make out what's being said on that call is kidding themselves. And now in hindsight, I can see why police didn't release the call earlier, because like they said, it would not have helped find Jamie. Now back to the courtroom. Denise told the defendant that she had already called 911 and that police were on the way. The defendant, who was still holding the shotgun in one hand, wrestled the phone out of Denise's hand with his other hand and threw it aside. According to his statement to police, he said in a calm voice, just be quiet, do what I say, and I won't hurt you. Exhibit 6 is a photo of the bathroom door that he broke through to get to Denise and Jamie. The defendant didn't even look at Denise when he killed her. Exhibit 7, Your Honor, shows where the defendant confined Jamie for 88 days. This was her prison. This is the creepiest exhibit by far. It's a photograph taken from a low angle of the space beneath Jake Patterson's bed where he would hide Jamie when he had people over to his house and when he left the house for up to 12 hours at a time. The defendant celebrated Thanksgiving eating out at a restaurant with his family while Jamie was confined to her prison under the defendant's bed. The defendant celebrated Christmas at his grandparents' house while Jamie was confined to her prison under the defendant's bed. Those were the defendant's rules, rules she better follow or something really bad would happen to her. Mr. Patterson is a cold-blooded killer who traumatized a 13-year-old girl for 88 days. He brutally murdered James and Denise because they stood in the way of his getting away with kidnapping the girl he saw getting on a school bus. 
a girl whose name he didn't even know when he kidnapped her. When he was interviewed, he told investigators, quote, I'm like a nice guy most of the time, end of quote. Mr. Patterson's lack of insight into why he is not a good person makes him a continuing danger. Then Wright shows Exhibit 8, the letter Patterson sent me from his jail cell. He has no empathy or remorse for killing James and Denise. Lou Raguse, a reporter with Care 11 News, sent Mr. Patterson 10 questions, which he answered, the defendant answered. Nowhere in the defendant's answers to Mr. Raguse's questions will you find him expressing any remorse for murdering James and Denise. This all came as a huge surprise to me. I had no idea District Attorney Wright was going to use the letter as a court exhibit. I reached out to Wright for a comment when I reported on receiving the letter, but he didn't give one, although I learned he almost certainly had a copy. And I'll tell you, it was a little awkward at first to hear my name used in such a major court hearing in a case like this, because as a reporter, you rarely ever want to become part of the story. But as Brian Wright continues, we quickly learn there's nothing negative about that aspect. He confirms many of my impressions of Patterson's letter, mainly the lack of remorse. And Wright is using that as proof that Patterson should never be eligible for parole. What an indignity to their lives for him to say the reason he did this is complicated. There is nothing complicated about why he murdered James and Denise. He murdered them to avoid getting caught. Their lives were inconsequential to him, just an obstacle in his way to kidnapping Jamie. What you will find in his letter to Mr. Raguse is his continued attempt to control Jamie by communicating directly with her about how sorry he is about everything. He's not sorry for kidnapping Jamie and murdering her parents. He's sorry that he got caught. Detective Nelson observed that the only time Mr. Patterson became emotional when he confessed to murdering James and Denise and kidnapping Jamie was when he asked if he would spend the rest of his life in prison. How sorry would Mr. Patterson have been for everything on January 10, had he gotten to his house a little earlier and found Jamie inside putting on his shoes or walking down the driveway of the house that he was residing in in Gordon or walking along the road with Gene Nutter. How sorry would he have been then? His only remorse is that he is no longer able to exercise complete and total control over the 13-year-old girl he kidnapped and thought he had gotten away with. Mr. Patterson murdered two human beings in cold blood and kidnapped a 13-year-old girl, and yet he is the one who is upset. This was his answer to one of Mr. Raguse's questions. Quote, little mad about the cops saying I planned this out. This was mostly on impulse, end of quote. The defendant will stop at nothing to get what he wants if he is ever released from prison. The need to protect the public starts with Jamie. If Mr. Patterson is ever released from prison, he will find Jamie. And when he does, her life will be in jeopardy. After two weeks, the defendant thought he had gotten away with murdering James and Denise and kidnapping Jamie. After 88 days, he was so confident he had gotten away with it that he applied for a job. He got caught because Jamie didn't follow his rules. Not only did she not follow his rules, but in his self-obsessed way of looking at why he got caught, she betrayed him by escaping. In the chilling words of Mr. Patterson, if he would have just returned home a half hour sooner, he could have prevented her from running away. Jamie should not have to spend one second of the rest of her life having to worry about the defendant being free. Nor should the families of James and Denise have to spend one second of the rest of their lives having to worry about the defendant being free and what could happen to them. Nor should the public 
have to worry about what Mr. Patterson is capable of doing if he is ever released from prison. Mr. Patterson has forfeited the privilege of ever again living in the community. Wright's argument to the judge lasts just under 40 minutes. Every one of those minutes makes an impact. It is strong and compelling, emotional and heartbreaking. He hits on every point. And Wright finishes by asking Judge Babbler to hand down the max, life in prison without the possibility of ever being released on parole. Then Patterson's attorneys have their turn to make a sentencing argument. Right away, Charles Glynn acknowledges it might not mean much. Your Honor, first and foremost, Mr. Patterson, Mr. Jones, and I are fully aware that everything we say here today will fall on deaf ears for most people, and even hostile ears for many people. Mr. Patterson's not getting out of prison. He's going to prison for the rest of his life. In fact, the first time I heard that was on January 13th, 2019, from the lips of Mr. Patterson. He told us on that night he was prepared to go to prison for the rest of his life for the horrible things that he had done. The main point Patterson's attorneys make is that he spared everyone the pain of a trial by pleading guilty immediately. And their main argument is that the possibility of parole far down the road, even if Patterson isn't likely to live that long, would open up opportunities in prison for counseling and rehabilitation. This horrific episode in the community would have been stuck in limbo for several years with no possibility of healing. And if this court would have allowed, and if our legal obligations would have allowed, he wanted to plead guilty the next day. We are a uh, state that is known for good therapeutic efforts in our prisons. And I know nobody is in a very sympathetic mood for him here right now, but one of the things that you can't do when you're sentenced to life in prison without parole is you don't get the same programmatic offerings. And the defense attorneys offer some insight into what they've learned about the killer. Dr. Gregory Van Rybrook, a well-respected forensic psychologist in the state of Wisconsin, had the chance to interview and analyze and and, uh, diagnose Mr. Uh, Patterson. He found that there was no sociopathic or psychopathic tendencies. He found that there were no mental uh, diagnoses that applied to Mr. Patterson at the time. He made very um, strong conclusions. He obviously called the uh, crimes abhorrent. He referred to them um, as well outside the boundaries of social behavior. But he ruled out all such mental diseases and defects and concluded that Mr. Patterson is not a sociopath and does not have psychopathic tendencies. Dr. Van Rybrick further concluded that Mr. Patterson's actions, while being abhorrent, were not part of escalating behaviors arising from childhood or adolescence. Dr. Van Van Rybrick goes on to offer the following conclusion. Mr. Patterson severely overreacted to his loneliness and resulted disconnection from most people due to his self-imposed isolating behaviors. His criminal actions were a desperate attempt to inject some meaning into his life and give him a reason to live without regard for harm to the harm it would cause to others. Here's defense attorney Richard Jones. His conduct cannot be described as that based upon antisocial or psychopathic behavior. He, he doesn't meet the criteria for either of those because in order for those to exist, it would have had to have an onset before the age of 15. And since there's no onset of anything before the age of 15 in terms of antisocial behavior or criminal activity, he can't be diagnosed with either of those. And we learned that the prominent theme concerning Jake was a lifetime of social isolation. A social isolation that Jake couldn't explain to anyone. He, he couldn't explain why it happened. Early on in his life, he started, you know, he had friends, he hung out with friends, but he'd start to withdraw even at an early age. And one of the things that really pushed him over, which I find intriguing, was he started to wear glasses. Now, other kids wear glasses, but he became very um, emotional about that. It became something that he wore as almost an albatross around his neck, and he started to even withdraw further to a place where he began this place of isolation. Jones says Patterson tried to step out of that isolation by joining the Marines. But he says after the military found an ailment, Patterson had to go home. That doesn't exactly line up with what the Marines told us about Patterson being kicked out because of the character of his service. Jones says Patterson then returned to his life of social isolation, and that eventually led to the crimes. Jake severely overreacted to his loneliness 
and resulting disconnection from most people due to a self-imposed isolating behaviors. And his criminal actions were a desperate attempt to inject some meaning into his life and give him a reason to live without regard to the harm it would cause others. So, as he wrote to the reporter, the reasons were for this were very complicated, many of which he didn't understand himself. He has rehabilitative needs. And for those reasons, Your Honor, we make the following request for a sentence. We request the court sentence Jake to life, but to give him an extended supervision date in the year 2072. 2072, Jake will be about 75 years old. As to count three, we request that the court sentence Jake to the maximum of 25 years initial confinement. At that time, Jake will be 100 years old. His life expectancy is not 100 years old, is not 100 years. In other words, as he told us on January 13th, as we've known throughout the course of this case, he would die in prison. But that sentence gives him a chance to work on his issues, to somewhat be rehabilitated, to have some level of respect and quality within the prison system, to get the services that he needs. Thank you. Mr. Patterson, is there anything you wish to tell the court before I impose sentence? Yeah. Jake Patterson takes a deep breath and from his seat next to Richard Jones gives the closest thing to an apology the Kloss family has heard so far. I'll just say that I would do, like, absolutely anything to take back what I did, you know. I would die. I would do absolutely anything to... to bring them back, you know. I don't care about me, I just, I'm just so sorry. That's all. Now it's Judge Babbler's turn. And Judge Babbler does not hold back on Patterson. I've been a lawyer for almost 40 years and a judge for the last 16 years, almost entirely in this county. And these crimes rank as the most heinous and dangerous that I have seen either here or anywhere else in the state of Wisconsin and perhaps the United States. I have no idea what rehabilitation could be provided for you. No one suggested any rehabilitation because even from your own side, the doctors can't find anything wrong with you. Babbler starts talking about something that's in the pre-sentence report. This is a report prepared by a probation agent before the hearing including a snapshot of the defendant's life history, and it gives recommendations to the judge. This document is not considered public data, so all we will learn about what's in it is what's said in open court on this day. Patterson's attorneys advised him not to participate with the pre-sentence investigation because they didn't think doing so would help him. But judge says the report's author included portions of things Patterson wrote while in his jail cell. And when the judge begins to read Patterson's words... A chill overcomes the entire courtroom. I started having bad thoughts all the time. Fantasies about keeping a young girl prisoner, torturing her, and totally controlling her. At first I fought them. I had no reason to live, and doing this was the only thing I wanted, but I was Christian. Fear of hell was the only thing that was stopping me. After a while, I stopped believing in God and I stopped fighting my fantasies. I thought about it every day. This was the summer of 2018. Now I was just waiting for an opportunity. I drove around a lot, just trying to get lucky and see a girl alone. After a while, I knew that wouldn't work. I thought of how I could get away with kidnapping a girl. My biggest problem was always witnesses. I could control what I left behind as far as evidence, but not who saw me. That's when I thought of a home invasion kidnapping at night. I hadn't decided if I would kill the parents or just tie them up. It wasn't a moral problem. If... I knew I killed them, it would get a lot more attention. But if I I let them live there, 
If I left them live, there would, there would be good witnesses. I finally decided it didn't matter how much attention it got. If I left no evidence or witnesses, it didn't matter if they th- sent a thousand FBI agents if they had nothing to go on. Before I did this, I planned on taking multiple girls, killing multiple families. I wanted to treat them differently, play mind games with them. I also just wanted to scare people. I hated everyone, but no one in particular. Everyone I actually know I liked, but I hated society as a whole. I didn't care if I died. If I could get away with having the girl for a week, it was worth dying for. When I saw Jamie, I instantly thought she would be a good target. Actually, mostly it was she was the first girl I saw once I had those ideas in my head. Mr. Patterson, not only were you a danger to the Kloss family... Right there, Patterson interrupts the judge. As Judge Babbler was reading, Patterson was firmly shaking his head. And now he asks, why don't you read the rest of the letter? He says, I wrote a bunch of other stuff. But the judge ignores him and continues. Not only were you a danger to the Kloss family, you are an extreme danger to the public in general. There is no doubt in my mind that you are one of the most dangerous men to ever walk on this planet. There is talk of your remorse, but as the agent points out in the PSI, there's a difference between regret and remorse. Regret means you're sorry that you're caught. Remorse means you have empathy for the victims. I have no doubt that you have regret, and I have no doubt that you have no remorse. I would be remiss if I did not emphasize what has been obvious, and it's been spoken today in some manner, that James and Denise Kloss did what good parents do. Everything they could do, even giving up their lives to protect their daughter on the night she was kidnapped. At best, it is my hope that today's hearing will bring you some bit of closure to this awful nightmare and perhaps some return of a sense of safety and security. You are the embodiment of evil, and the public can only be safe if you are incarcerated until you die. After 90 minutes of arguments and impact statements, Judge Babbler hands down the sentence we've all been waiting for. I sentence you to life imprisonment without the eligibility for release on extended supervision. All right, we're adjourned. Everyone breathes, and Jake Patterson is escorted out. The last time any of Jamie's family will ever have to lay eyes on him. This podcast is sponsored by the new CARE 11 app, now totally redesigned to make it the newest, easiest, must-have app for Minnesota weather with interactive radar, video forecasts, and hyper-local accurate weather alerts. It is still coming in with a lot of lightning and thunder. We do have a few warnings out for a number of counties. From the hottest days to the most severe storms, stay on top of it all with the new CARE 11 app. Download or update today. At a podium outside the courtroom, all of Jamie's family members join District Attorney Wright and Sheriff Chris Fitzgerald. There's additional family here who watch the hearing from a private room in the courthouse. At this point, we really haven't heard much about how Jamie's doing, acclimating to her new life now four months after her escape. Her Aunt Jennifer touches on that. On behalf of Jamie, I would like to thank everyone involved in helping us through this very difficult time. The FBI, local law enforcement, and the Barron County District Attorney have acted professionally and with great kindness. We will always be grateful for their dedication. Today was a very important step in the process of helping Jamie to move forward. We are satisfied with the outcome and believe that it will give Jamie some much needed peace of mind. I fully understand the interest and questions related to how Jamie is doing. I can tell you that she has made a great deal of progress 
but obviously has much work left to do. She has spent time with her friends, has been doing her homework, and of course is hanging out with Molly. We are so thankful for the time and space that the media has given her. Jamie will very likely have more to say in the future, but we are grateful for you allowing her to do that on her own terms. So many people have demonstrated their generosity by sending Jamie gifts, donations, and notes of support. I want everyone to know that Jamie has personally gone through every gift and every card. Your kindness has brought her great joy and many smiles. These gifts have come from all over the world and is very appreciated. I also want to thank once again this community. Their love, support, respect has been overwhelming. The town of Barron, the state of Wisconsin, the people from around the entire country has given Jamie and our entire family great comfort. Thank you for all being here today. After the hearing, people in Barron tell Danny Spiewak they're thankful for the sentence. It's good to see the laws working for working. us. To know that he's behind bars and he's going to be for life, that's good. And I think the justice got served today. They always believed Jamie would come home. It's one of the best things I've ever seen a town do for a single cause. It's a tight-knit community, so to see everybody come together and actually be on the same page about something is pretty significant. The class of 2019 graduates from Barron High School tonight, and this district has been through so much over the past seven months. Tonight, though, this class is taking a step forward into the future at the same time that this community is moving ahead following Jake Patterson's sentence. It would be nice if justice in a courtroom could instantly spell relief. But I've seen it before. A life sentence brings some closure, but the healing process is slow. In August, we learn the Kloss home, the house on Highway 8 where the murders took place, is being demolished. The property is now owned by a bank, and with Jamie's family's blessing, they decide to remove the house rather than try to put it on the market. And Lou Goose went back to the town to discuss the closure it brings for that community. One person put it well on social media, the house is gone now, but the home was gone back in October. When I get there, bulldozers are smoothing out the dirt where the house stood, and heavy construction equipment is quickly being moved out. A simple bird feeder behind the foundation stands as the only recognizable relic of the former home. Jamie's family isn't interested in commenting on the demolition, so I look down the road and see the driveway for Tom and Joan Smrecker. Remember in Chapter 1, on October 15th, Joan told us how she heard two gunshots in the middle of the night. They didn't call 911 because they thought it was just a neighbor scaring an animal like a bear out of their yard. You live here, you live in the country, you don't think of somebody getting shot right next door to you. It's not what you think about. You know, the next day, you're, you're doing some interviews and stuff, but you had no idea the impact this case would have on your personal life. <sighs> no. Oh, my. Um, it's like it was too much for me to take in and, and, and deal with. Since then, Joan's been in therapy after being harassed for her inaction. Cards in the mail or emails or, you know, it was like, why didn't you do, you know, better? She's been riddled with guilt, and the Kloss home, which she has to look at every time she drives to Barron, stood as a reminder why. And I've had this awful spot in my heart for... Jamie, because I feel sorry for her, but I'm so proud of her. She is so strong, and I'm so glad that she is back. And just for her to know that... I know there was nothing I probably could have changed much, but I wish we would have called the sheriff's department and just said, come and check this out. And I didn't. We didn't. So you can hear the impact, even just on neighbors... 10 months after the horrible crimes. Healing certainly doesn't happen fast. Now it's September, 
Jamie turned 14 and has rejoined her classmates in school. Her aunt said Jamie will tell her story someday when she's ready, and the rest of the family isn't doing interviews until that day comes. Jake Patterson has been moved far away from Barron to a maximum security prison in New Mexico for his own safety. There will be new information from the case released soon because the Wisconsin Department of Justice is preparing to release the investigative files. We'll be back with a bonus episode when that happens to tell you about any interesting developments within those files. As we close this chapter, I've been doing a lot of reflecting. For me, this case is unique for many reasons. First, this is a rare podcast where you aren't hearing about police missteps. The majority of the community outwardly and proudly supported law enforcement throughout. They were always on the same team, and that can be rare. And even though police didn't actually find Jamie, she ended up saving herself, there are no glaring mistakes detectives made along the way that would have led to a different outcome. Unless they would have had the foresight to pull over the red car Jake Patterson was driving as they responded to the house but they say they didn't know exactly what they were responding to until they got to the house. So it turns into a real hindsight is twenty twenty situation. This was also a rare case where I was more personally involved than with anything else I've ever covered. Getting that letter from the suspect before he even entered a plea in court was crazy. And it was heavy knowing that what I reported that night would shake everything up. But the main thing that will stick with me is how the community never gave up hope. And Jamie vindicated those beliefs. Our society can be so cynical. And after 88 days, nearly three months, who would blame them if they started thinking this wasn't going to end well? But Jamie proved them right. And she proved everyone else wrong. I think Sheriff Fitzgerald summed it up perfectly at one point. He said, people ask, how do you talk about something like this with your kids? How do you talk about this case with your kids? And the answer is, you can tell them, never give up hope. Never give up hope. And those aren't just empty words. You can say it and really mean it and really believe it. Your prayers can be answered. And that's something we all learned from a 13-year-old girl from Barron, Wisconsin. This is 88 Days, The Jamie Kloss Story, a CARE 11 original podcast in association with Vault Studios. Check out 88dayspodcast.com for more information on the Jamie Kloss case. 88 Days is written and produced by me, Lou Raguse, and Ellie Coder. Original music is by Dave Mailing and Emily Havik, and original artwork by David Malman. Thanks to Dan Crow and Atomic K Productions for audio help. Special thanks to CARE 11 management and staff for their contributions the people of Barron, Wisconsin, and the Kloss family. Growing up here, dealing with everything that's going on now, I'm surprised this town's even standing. Bardstown, Kentucky is a small town in the heart of the Bluegrass State. But Bardstown, Kentucky also has secrets. Five unsolved murders over four years. Rumors and theories, and still no one is behind bars. I've been 100% free. Listen to what I'm saying. You listen to what I'm saying. Bardstown, a new podcast from Vault Studios. It's been you know, almost six years. There's still not a lot of answers. 